Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. It's fun being in Los Angeles here for Oscars weekend, and uh, I guess I'd, I'd always had this idea that LA was home to uh, actors, actors working as waitresses, uh, waitresses wanting to be actors, but keynote speakers and innovation <laughs> experts. Is this is this another hidden cluster of talent in LA that I was unaware of? It is. You know, on weekends I do I waitress so that I can. You know, <laughs> Are you a waitress slash innovation I, guru. I, I, I am. I am author, sort of wannabe author. Like so, when people ask me, well, you know, what do you do? I say I'm a waitress. <laughs> no, I say I'm an author, and then I say what well, they say. What do you do for a living to make money? And I say I'm a waitress. That's well, what happens. We're definitely sort of it's ground zero of West Hollywood right now sitting in the in the very busy lobby of the uh, Mondrian Hotel on Sunset and I'm hanging out with uh, Tiffany Boga who's the author of a fabulous book uh, Growth IQ uh, the subtitle is get smarter about choices that will make or break your business she's also the growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce correct all of these things must keep you very busy a little bit <laughs> slightly but not too busy to come hang out with you at the I, Mondrian on a beautiful very, Southern California I'm Saturday very grateful we managed to do that <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the most fascinating parts of your book, uh, as I was reading through it, uh, and the book, of course, has a number of the different pathways to, you know, to growth for leaders to make good decisions, was actually not the story of companies that succeeded in the present, but stories from the past. And, and, and I'm thinking, of course, of Sears, because I, I think we've we've actually forgotten what an innovative Sears was. Yeah, it was one of those companies that I think anybody who is in sales and marketing today, most definitely in retail, there's not one thing they're doing, you know, whether it's you know, uh, sending out multiple products, free returns, discounts, you know, seasonal sales, one-time sales, weekend sales, all that began with Sears. And they were even pioneering in credit cards and loyalty programs uh, and all kinds of things. And so I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find something a retailer's doing today that Sears didn't do a hundred years ago. So in like 1890, <laughs> I mean, Sears was the Amazon of its time. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. And if you look at the catalog, you know you can absolutely see that that's pretty much what we've done now to e-commerce stores. It's kind of the everything store, if you will, back then. But it was mostly geared towards farmers, uh, and it was it, they actually sold homes at one time. Right. And, yeah, they sold tractors, and so it was very much trying to to disrupt the local mom and pop store for the farming farming community. And so then they since have been disrupted. So it's interesting how you know, so it's come was, full was, circle. Was the story of Sears really a story of scale? Like that, that they realized that growth was about getting a certain critical mass in the number of products you served, the number of markets you served in. Yeah, it was not only that, it was about also being very close to the customer. Right. So Sears was also like, where is my customer and how do I get close to them? Uh, and so the catalog was a way for them to get close to them, but then they realized they actually needed brick and mortar stores to support that. And so, you know, there was some, a stat in the book that was, you know, every U.S. household was in something like 10, every 10 miles of a Sears store. And so, you know, it was convenience. It was how do I extend what I sell in the catalog into a retail experience? How do I blend those two things? I mean, the sort of online and offline was different from what it is today, but, but very similar. So I think they also very much circled around customer experience. I think that's, that's one thing. 
Yeah, you know, the, even in the 80s, there was still a, a powerhouse. And, 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 and this was really the point where Walmart sort of outseared seers. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they sort of took a lot of their, their, their methodologies and approaches and they weaponized it with, uh, as you point out in your book, technology and smarter processes and better design supply chains. Well, so you think about what Walmart did in doing that, right? And you're correct. And then what the response was is that Sears and Kmart went together. And so it's like blending themselves with the old model, two old models blending together to look for more scale and more growth, where the competitor was saying, let's replicate the model, taking advantage of what technology now gives us, especially in the supply chain, which they were masterful at doing. And so uh, I think Sears hung on to the old a little longer than they should have by combining themselves with Kmart. And, and it didn't give them a competitive edge that they were hoping for. So, so really what, what doomed them was not their failure to embrace digital channels and basically compete with Amazon. They were already doomed by their failure to reinvent their supply chain. It was the supply chain and the brick and mortar, right? So their whole concept was if we could marry what products Kmart has and what products Sears has that the other doesn't have and then offer it to the, you know, the other customer base we could do customer-based penetration. So Sears could penetrate Kmart's customers, Kmart could penetrate Sears customers with products that one didn't have. But then you're making an assumption that someone who buys you know, drills and washing machines you know, wants cooking supplies. Like, and so I think the cross-sell, upsell concept might have been correct. I don't know if that was the right way to go and execute on that no. plan. And actually so many mergers are based on flawed logic like that which is, you know, that you've got uh, a certain, uh, you know, that's a zero-sum game with customers and you can just flog more stuff to them. But they don't often miss the dynamics of a competitor who maybe uh, does something much smaller and simpler, but in a more dynamic way. Yeah, and even if you look forward and fast forward, now uh, those brands, uh, the Walmarts of the world now competing against Amazon, their competitive, their biggest competitive uh, positioning against each other is actually groceries. It isn't everything you think of when you think about Walmart. Like it's not fishing rods and clothes and you know cleaning supplies and it, it's groceries. And so that's where they're battling out. So when you look at why Amazon bought Whole Foods was to go head to head against where they were losing in the grocery business, which is where Walmart is driving most of its profit and growth. And so Sears did not have that component. So once again, thinking about these pivots, like what do customers want from that? So what, what super is the interesting. Value of groceries is it just the uh, the regular uh, contacts with the, the customer? Well, it's that, and you can go and get everything, right? So I can go get groceries, and oh, I also need, and I might need, right? And so it's not the whole footprint. It's not like you know the Walmart is just a grocery store now. That is not true. There's a big portion of them in their big superstores that are, are that are that way. But looking at the big boxes like a Costco or a Sam's Club in the U.S you'd know that that's pretty much groceries, right? And so giving that experience of, we can give you everything, um, but their grocery business is, is what's driving a lot, of, a lot of the transformation for them. Well, we were talking about this earlier. Um, you said something interesting, and you said that Sears' real mistake was not being able to capitalize and own the smart home. Yes. That could have been their destiny. Yeah, and I think, that was, that, yeah, I think that was a miss, right? Because yeah. if you think about what you bought at Sears, most of it, they owned, you know, four or five of the biggest brands in the world, from Whirlpool and Kenmore to diehard batteries to Goodyear tires to, I mean, just the whole nine yards. And so you think about the home, they were sending repairmen into the home to install, to repair, everything in the kitchen, 
at the time. So let's just focus on the kitchen. So could Sears have bought Nest and said like, let's extend past that? Could they have bought Ring to right. say, you know, we're going to now own a little bit of security? Could they have gotten something else and said, we want to, you know, own the home and everything that goes into the home uh, and take advantage of these big brands? And instead, what they did was when they got into trouble, they started to peel and sell off those brands. And so I feel like they weren't only selling the brand name, they were selling that entire loyal customer base right. and the access to the house. And now if you look what Amazon's doing, they're eat, they're buying up everything to get them in the home yeah. and to own more of the and home. And they're trying to build the trust to actually let people give them a key to go in the house, to deliver groceries right. in the fridge. That's right. But you know, you could say there's a huge generation who says, I absolutely trust Sears. Right. Like, trust them. So, you know, when, when, when you think about uh, AI, a lot of retailers are just looking at it like, you know, 3D on television. This is another product feature. But what you're suggesting is, is that these connected digital technologies are really an opportunity for retailers to build a deeper relationship with customers rather than just selling them another product suite. Yeah, and it's not just the retailers, though. You also have to think about the brands because if you think about a brand, like I can't go to potentially... Uh, uh, I don't know if I could, so I'm going to maybe go a little out of school on this one, but I don't know if I could go to, you know, die hard and buy a battery online. Maybe I, or Shell Oil, I couldn't go to Shell Oil and buy a gallon of gas. Like, uh, you know, the refinery, the big Shell company. I have to go to a retailer, i.e. a Shell gas station, which is usually franchised or owned by other people. And so part of the problem is, is in the supply chain is the manufacturing brand doesn't always have a relationship with me. Like Heinz ketchup, let's go back yeah, to groceries. Yeah. I can't go to Heinz.com and buy ketchup. So who owns my Heinz relationship is Walmart or yeah. Whole Foods or Ralph's or CVS or whoever you want to say from a, from a retailer perspective. Heinz has no relationship with me whatsoever. And so trying to figure out as a brand how to extend my relationship with a consumer when I don't own the commerce, you know, the transaction itself is very different. Um, and so you see a lot of uh, these big retailers coming up with their own brands, private labeling and white labeling and coming up with their own brands so they can have a complete relationship with the consumer. I can make it, I can sell it, I can support you or service it uh, going forward. So I think that that's really part of it as well, uh, where Sears had it all, right? They had the whole supply chain. They owned the brand, they were selling it, they were manufacturing it, they were supporting it, fixing it, and then keeping that relationship from a loyalty perspective and they let it all go. Survival is one thing, but, but often leaders are doomed by just uh, not growing fast enough and not thinking big enough. It's not just about you know surviving to the next quarter. Why is growth such a difficult strategic decision you know, for leaders to make? Because well, the, the growth you describe in your book is more than just incremental, a few percentage points. It, it's really transformative growth in many, in many cases. Yeah, well, there's a couple things. One, I'd say uh, that the one thing about growth is it's not one thing. That's sort of everyone right. tries to fixate on what's the one thing that's going to fix my business or fix They're my culture. The bullet, They're basically. looking for the silver bullet, right? That's sort of one. Two, I very specifically in this book, uh, Growth IQ, focused on the top line growth. I did not focus on any kind of M&A for growth, like right. we were just talking about, um, or cutting costs for growth. Like I just focused on organic top line growth, yeah. which requires a very different level of thinking. If someone's making a decision on how to grow from a spreadsheet at all, 
only and doesn't know <laughs> well, what financial engineering or financial it. engineering or what Wall Street or, you know, whatever it's going to be, the Nikkei, the Fitzy, the whatever, wherever right. you are in the world. Right. And thinking about what they're going to judge um, you on. Uh, and, I, and I think that that growth is getting much harder because the barrier to entry is much lower. So one of the stories in the book is Kylie Jenner, which, um, you know, let's go to the Sears story and talk about all the assets they own and the, all the expense that's associated with that. And then you have someone who can pop up a company that gets to $700 million in less than three years with 12 employees. Yeah. And you go, okay, you know, it took the next closest beauty brand well over a decade, if not multiple decades, to reach their first billion dollars. Now, yes, she has a huge platform. And so that goes back to one of the big reasons I wrote the book was modernizing the fact that now that we have social and mobile and cloud and big data and AI and machine learning and all the things we have at our disposal, what can leaders think about differently when it comes to actually trying to grow the business and not trying to grow it the same way they used to, using the same playbooks, yeah. but now taking advantage of all this rich technology we have and how would they do it differently? So, I mean, what, in some ways, the Kylie Jenner example is tantalizing and frustrating because it, 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 one way of reading it is that if you're very famous, you can get away with anything, right? Like the business almost is not as important. But, but actually, I think when you actually look closely at the case study, it seems to be that she made a lot of very smart decisions in a particular order, as you say, with the right context. You know, just because you're famous doesn't mean necessarily you can leverage that platform into business success. So what's the lesson? Yeah. Right. So the lesson would be, so, you know, we may never, <laughs> you and I collectively <laughs> on a good day, right, are never going to have 130,000 followers <laughs> or 130 million, million followers, yeah. right? I mean, at the end of the day, right? So, huh. so you say, okay, take that off. But if I had 5,000 really loyal followers, what can I do with that? You know, which Red Bull's another story, right? Very loyal it was a very specific customer set. How do I get them to rave about my product, tell the story, spend very little on money, be really unique? And so Red Bull did it almost very similar to Kylie without this big platform she had. Yeah. It was back then, it was, let's put a video up of some guy jumping from space and let it go viral and let that happen naturally that way. And that's how we grew demand and people knowing who we were as a brand. And so it's just, how can you take these little stories? And that was the whole goal it, in 2,500 words. You know, I, I can't get very deep into it. It was a moment in time. And so in yeah. her case, it was partnerships to deliver some parts and pieces of that business that she was doing. Do I need to go stand up my own lab? Or can I private label and design my own stuff and use someone else's lab? Do I need to build my own warehouses or can I use someone else's supply chain and warehouses? You know, the one thing she had that she brought to the table was that big platform from a social media standpoint. But many a celebrity have failed miserably with their names. So it's not just that. But the, well, one thing that is very true about the 21st century is that the infrastructure for growth can be rented and, and can be leased or can be used on demand, whether it's, you know, Salesforce or Amazon Web Services or, you know, any of the sort of the infrastructure around that. It's the secret source that matters now. Yeah, well, I'd say absolutely. And so let's go back to what we were talking about, about why is growth sort of getting harder? And yeah. I would say that sometimes uh, this is where owners, especially in small businesses, get so fixated on what it is that they make and what they do that they forget about why people use it, 
how they use it, how they feel when they engage with their brand. And so, right. you know, I'm a furniture maker and I, and I pride myself on it. I'm a fourth generation furniture maker and I have a very comfortable life. That's very different than saying, I want to launch a furniture brand <laughs> and go global. Okay. So if you're going to say, I want to do that, you can't just make the furniture yourself. It's just not possible. Oh. Right. And so then you have to figure out how can I create the opportunity for me to scale that business. So the first thing about growth is you've got to decide if you even want to grow. Do you want to grow? I know that sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes people are very comfortable in a lifestyle business. If you want to grow at market or if you want to hyper growth, those are very different things. And so if you want to hyper grow, this is this rented asset, you know, shared economy that we can take advantage of. If you want to continue to maintain a lifestyle business, I don't know how much that can help you. Um, unless you're starting to slow down and you want to find another way to solve those those business needs. But if you're right in the middle and you want to grow it at sort of market rate, um, now it's this combination of what can I do myself? What can I, you know, and outsource has become the four-letter word. So I don't know if, you know, we want to reintroduce outsource as a word into the nomenclature, but it's really leveraging this, well, you We've got know, virtual resources now. Yep. You, you don't actually need to physically build a data center or build a fleet of salespeople. I mean, you, you can actually access a lot of this, these channels. And systems. And I, and I think this is where uh, leaders get caught in this sort of internal inertia. You know, there's one of the stats in the book, it was a Bain study, and uh, it was very sort of large companies, medium to large companies, that 95% of the CEOs felt that their biggest hurdle to growth was actually internal inertia. It was not external factors. You know, so while we can have natural disasters and big sort of black swan events that will be the outliers in that comment I just made. Yeah. For the mean, it usually is internal, cultural. It's that we can't get out of our own way. We can't think of things in new ways. And so we just keep relying on what well, we've always done. Well, and a number of the stories of companies that turned themselves around and went onto a growth path that you, you covered, and I'm thinking of like Starbucks and McDonald's, it actually required the leadership team to do very non-intuitive big moves, whether it's shutting the business down and retraining all of the staff yes. or you know, you know, simplifying the menu dramatically and serving breakfast all day, in the case of McDonald's. Uh, I mean, almost to overcome that inertia, it, it required uh, gravity-defying moves by leadership, you know, which went, went in the face of convention. Well, in the McDonald's uh, example, what, what I really wanted to call out in that is for 10 years, if not longer, consumers were saying we wanted all-day breakfast. <laughs> And they weren't except listening to Greece. that. Except in Be Greece. Because, of, because <laughs> Greece, maybe it's changed, but until very recently, it's the only country that I've found where they don't even open at breakfast. Because no self-respecting Greek would actually eat anything other than coffee. Interesting. <laughs> well, so it's been very interesting as I've traveled around the world, sort of in the last 12 months, talking about the book and the concepts of the book, where pockets of the story doesn't work, right? Because people are like, we don't eat breakfast, we just drink coffee, right? Yeah. Or, you know, I was in Iceland and there was no Starbucks. The story really fell flat because everyone's like, you know, we don't have Starbucks here. And I was like, oh, I, I'm not sure I've ever been anywhere in the world that there's not actually a Starbucks. But okay, thanks. Good to note, note to self, right? Um, but the McDonald's one was really about listening to the customer. The Starbucks one was what got them to uh, be as successful as they were was this amazing experience and feeling people had when they entered the Starbucks sort of, you know, orbit and they lost their way. And so sometimes uh, as you grow bigger, um, you lose track of uh, you know, what it was all about. I think Amazon has done a masterful job. It's, they stay very focused on day one, like what started the business, they, that's sort of their true north that they always make sure they go back to as they make decisions for growth. The, the tricky part in all this, and we, we, we kind of foreshadowed this a little when we were speaking earlier, is that 
in the 21st century, a lot of the time your customers are not even people anymore. They're other things. And you've got systems talking to systems and you've got algorithms driving results. And, uh, you know, how, what is really the role of a, of a leader or a salesperson or a strategist in a world where it's, it's just all data chasing each other? Yeah, and I, I sort of joke when, I, when I'm on stage and I say when things start selling to things, right, I want to see the pipeline and forecast meeting where right. some AI robot calls in all the bots yeah. and says, what's in your pipeline, right? Uh, and that happens virtually. It doesn't obviously literally happen. And so um, it, it really is about uh, how can machine and human work more closely together in a way that doesn't feel like it's lost the human touch um, and it doesn't over automate that you lose sort of the the fact the reasons why someone did business with you that you're not doing it from a cost perspective that you're really doing it as an augmentation uh, and and so many people are worried about AI sort of replacing jobs that how do you make sure that as you start to replace that with AI that you have a path for people to reskill and find new things for them to do to add value on top of now what machines or AI or robots are, are, are doing. Because this is going to be the temptation. I mean, the, the fact that Kylie Jenner can start up a billion dollar business with, uh, I think we just said 15 people, yeah. or WhatsApp can sell for $20 billion and with 50 staff. If you can design these lightweight organizations that can have hyper growth with rented infrastructure and very few people, uh, it's a very tantalizing path for big corporations as well to downsize dramatically to have that kind of those kind of returns. Yeah, and so I would I would pivot into the very first path that I wrote, which was customer experience. And I would say what that says is is that people value the experience they have with a brand. So in the WhatsApp example, to use Clayton Christensen's uh, uh, competing against Lockbook, his second most recent, um, he talks about a job being done. So I'm trying to communicate with you, you know? You live all over the world, I'm traveling all over the world, we wanna communicate. Well, the most efficient way for us to do it is WhatsApp, right? I mean, that's the easiest and best way to do it. So it was a job that needed to be done. And so the experience was, well, it's easy, it's intuitive, like I don't have to think about how do I use it? How do I use a VoIP phone? What headset? Like, right. do I need to download what something? What server? And yeah. you know, I can't use it in certain countries where WhatsApp sort of eliminated all of those hurdles. And so really for people, they made the decision over the experience of working with that because others weren't as easy. And so I think many people are starting to realize that it's the experience, not the product. Hmm. So Netflix is another one. I mean, they hone in on if someone has to look for more than 90 seconds for whatever they're looking for, they will leave. So Netflix has actually increased their prices three or four times in the last couple of years. And two things happened. Their churn rate declined and their conversion from non-paying to paying went up. Why? Right. Right? So you'd say where their other competitor has actually been decreasing pricing. Is that because like TV addicts are price insensitive or is it something Well, there'll be a point where there's a diminished return, obviously, right? Whatever it is, we don't know yeah. what the number is yet, no. right? But, uh, but <laughs> we're going to find out. We're going to find out. But in the US, 750,000 or so customers still do mail order DVDs, which is highly profitable for them, which allows them to fund all their original content. So they've said, we're going to do original content, we're going to show. We're going to do it in a really easy user interface. We're going to make it super simple for, we're going to make a com very compelling experience. No sales reps, no sales reps, right? Word of mouth and all the things that they've done, very kind of Red Bullish. And, and, 
and you now are able to see that people are willing to pay a premium for a better experience and so they're applying it to streaming where you know four seasons and nordstrom's and starbucks have all proven that those brands will charge a premium so is it a luxury product then would you say netflix is actually a luxury product it may be right it may be entering into the luxury product category because they're saying our unique content and our original content warrants the fact that someone's going to spend two dollars more a month or three dollars more a month to get access to this content so you have everyone chasing them you know to get their hands on better maybe, content. maybe luxury is the wrong word maybe it's more like a a non-transparent price category i mean because i mean this is the thing that you mentioned about starbucks or uber which is that we no one actually knows what they're paying for these things we don't pay attention anymore because we've made it so easy, right? Yeah. It's an app now. Yeah. It's an app. So you've lost trans you've lost visibility. Because you're not pulling public. out money anymore. Right. Right? Oh, it's seven dollars and fifty cents. Like yeah. wow, for a cup of coffee. Like yeah. right? Hmm, not sure. But the app, you're like, whatever, and it just auto reloads. <laughs> like right. and it just happens seamlessly. Or I'm in and the back of an Uber. Subscriptions, right? I mean if the thing goes up, you, you don't really that pay attention because it's it's being billed to your credit card automatically. Automatically, it, right? It's, it's not a discrete transaction anymore. And so at some point they're going to hit a wall where people are going to go, nope, that's too much money. Right. Right. And it's just like anything. Uh, but you have gym memberships that are $100 a month and you have gym but, memberships but if, if that are $15 the, a month. If the customer experience is still best in class and continues to delight you, you're less likely to pay attention to it. Correct. And so that's why I say that experience is the new product. And in the book, I actually say experience is the new black. And it was sort of, you know, uh, a play on. Uh, orange is the new black, yeah. you know? Uh, and so ultimately it was really around saying that people are paying much more attention and you know, they'll buy from you once, but loyalty is the second dollar. And if you have a better experience and just the same product, that people are more likely to stay with you longer and pay more money for it. And so I hear a lot of going back to leaders about growth is saying like, do we have a price problem? Should we lower the price? And I'm like, well, if you deliver a better experience, you could actually raise the price and you watch their you watch their facial expression like i could never raise my price why not why couldn't you like but you, you must you must remember this, this from back when you were an analyst too in that people often look at growth and strategy uh like a puzzle you know like they're, they're, they're looking at matrices and they're they're trying to look for you know high margin uh parts of the market without without competitors it just becomes a mathematical exercise but those are not the people that really understand customer experience. I agree. Which is a much I, more creative. I agree. You know, you, you want Baz Luhrmann, you know, helping you there, you know, not the, the head of your accounting department. Yeah, I would say that uh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, and I think growth is a thinking game. It's not a numbers game. I think numbers play into it. Like, I, you know, I don't want anybody listening to this to say like, oh, Tiffany doesn't think the products are important. That is not true. I no. think they are important. Um, but I don't think they're the only thing that's important, right? No. I think it is. It isn't. A, it isn't a product price matrix. No, not issue. anymore, right? Uh, and and you know, I want four chapters, four paths in the book is actually a spin on the Ansoff matrix, which is from 1957, uh, and I just modernized it because I said, hold on a second, you know, we now have the ability to leave and join brands very quickly with a swipe or with a click, and that didn't used to be the case, and yeah. so we've become much more. Uh, finicky as consumers we have greater experience expectations but we don't leave those at the door so in our business life we actually have higher expectations like we want business to be just as easy as setting something up in our home or ordering groceries like me ordering software 
a la Mark Benioff for Salesforce. Like I want to make, you know, a client's ability to get enterprise grade software as easy as buying a book. So software as a service, that's sort of where that came for him. And so you have to think when people go, I'm worried I'm going to get Uberized or I'm going to get Airbnbized or I'm going to get, you know, uh, WeWorkized or what, WhatsAppized, whatever. It's really about this business model and mental model. When you've talked to a lot of these customers in these big organizations, and I know you get to interact with a lot of them, what's your sense then, if this is really the end game, who are the most valuable kinds of people in these new organizations? Like, what's their mindset? Like, if, you know, what are the most valuable types of leaders? You know, given that we have now automation and technology and data and all of the stuff at our disposal. Yeah, and you could look at either sort of the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. You can look at business model versus mental model. So the way people actually think that it isn't the business model, right? So whenever I say, look, you could replicate the business model of Southwest Airlines, which is hub and spoke, yeah, right? But you, if you just replicate the business model, which United did with TED, and it failed miserably, but they didn't replicate the mental model, which was the experience people have when they're on board. Yeah, like don't, they, be, don't be dragged off, get all your teeth broken kind correct, of Correct, right? But in that <laughs> case, right, they took the United mental model and dropped it into TED and took the business model of Southwest and dropped it into TED. So you have this sort of non-fun, friendly brand experience associated with the business model it didn't work. You know, they didn't have flight attendants singing and joking and, you know, helping people off a plane and, you know, wheeling someone in a wheelchair. The pilot will push someone off the plane on, in a wheelchair. You wouldn't see that. And so the mental model is really important. So going back to your question, I think it's people who are uh, have diversity of thought and are willing to relook at the mental model and not just look at the business model. And that can be diversity of thought, not only from a gender perspective, but it could be where they're from in the world. You know, it could be they're introverts, could be they're not fast thinkers that they need to sort of, you know, stew on a thought for a minute before they just answer. And so you get this very different perspective versus the sort of group think of everyone sitting at the table is going to give you the same answer. Like if someone said at a meeting, oh, that's okay, you know, Bob's not here, but I know what he, he would say, you have a problem. Because if you know what someone's going to say, you're not going to get any unique sort of thought. So I'd say um, the people you need to hire have to be uh, willing to speak up, share different points of view, but then everybody else needs to be willing to hear it and action it differently. Otherwise, you just end up in the same place with a different group of people. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Mm-hmm.